Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's very good to see you. My name's Will, and uh, you're so, so welcome to be with us this morning, worshipping Jesus. Um, I'm very excited to be here, and the reason I'm excited to be here is I wasn't here last week, so I've had a week off. I wasn't here last week because um, I was... Uh, with my twins um, and my other child, Jesse, we were down in Windsor at Legoland. We promised to take them to Legoland for a long time. You can see Legoland there on the screen. And um, let me just tell you, church, that um, the kingdom has come. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, the kingdom has come. It's in Windsor. And um, it's made of tiny, multicolored plastic bricks. And uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful time down in Legoland. It was everything that you dreamed uh, a land of Lego could be. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's rides and overpriced food places and there's um, little bits made of Lego. They sort of made famous parts of the world out of Lego. But the, the one thing that everyone wants to go on, the one thing, the main attraction, the longest queue of the day for us was the Ninjago ride. Anybody been on the Ninjago ride at Legoland? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the Ninjago ride, it's a, a ride, just if you didn't know, it's a place where you can go and train to be a Lego ninja, which obviously is something I've always wanted to do. And so we queued up for the 40 minutes and we went on this ride. And the ride is basically quite a sort of simple thing where you sit on this um, sort of seat and this bar kind of comes down over you and you sort of sit there, you're in the sort of car thing and it moves along a track, it's indoor. But before you get on the ride, you put on these glasses, these 3D glasses. And uh, as you're sort of going around this track, as you turn a corner, you're in front of different screens. And on these screens, they sort of project things. And because you've got these 3D glasses on, it's like stuff sort of flies out of the screen at you, like spiders and uh, webs and little pieces of Lego, whatever. And um, you, uh, what you have to do is, when you see these things, you kind of have to move your hands like this. Everybody do this. You sort of move your hands like this, that's right, good technique. And uh, you sort of move high, low, and, and what happens, because you've got these glasses on and the screen's there, the technology, these things sort of fly out of your, your hands at the screen and they knock over what's coming at you. So, so you see a spider appear and you throw this thing and it knocks it out, it's this amazing ride. And um, you're sort of moving along and halfway through this ride, this Ninjago ride, as I'm firing these things, doing quite well, I like to think, Jesse, who's five years old, so it's just me and Jesse in this car, the, the, other, the others are behind her, just me and Jesse. Little Jesse turns to me with his glasses on, he's just doing this, turns to me and he goes, Dad, is this real? <laughs> Dad, is this real? And I sort of thought in that moment, I thought, he, what, like, what does he think this is? Like, he, mu he must think the whole thing is real. Like, when, like, does he think this is Big Ben? Can we click on, Miles? Keep clicking through. Like, is this the International Space Station? Next one. What does he think is going on here, right? <clears throat> this giant coming out of the water. Like, what does he think is going on? Is this real? And are these real pirates? Is this really happening? Is this real? And uh, there's something about that question, is this real? As we come to this passage, look at Thomas today, known as Doubting Thomas, this question, is this real? Um, experts, uh, sociologists, philosophers talk about a move of secularization. And one of the ways that people describe this move is, is the move from a, a situation in the past where faith and belief was kind of accepted as the norm to a situation now where 
faith belief is contested. Everybody's contesting it. It's not just there's sort of atheists and, and, and non-atheists. It's everyone's contesting it all the time. If you believe it's contested, if you don't believe it's contested, we live in the age of these contested beliefs. And there's a guy who writes about it I like called James Smith. And James Smith has a chapter in his book about secularization, and the chapter is called, We Are All Thomas Now. I like that. We're all Thomas now. Is it real? And what's true, though, is that this isn't just a cultural phenomenon, is it? This questioning. For many of us, this question, is it real, is actually a deeply personal one. Lots of us have these questions. We've experienced something or seen something, and it's just hard to feel fully in. Is this real, all this? this worship experience, this Christ thing, this church thing. Why don't more people get healed? Right? Why wasn't my prayer answered? You've prayed and prayed. You've done the Friday nights. You've done the Thursday mornings, the Wednesdays or whatever, and you've just not seen enough. Where is the revival? What is real? And you know the thing that struck me in this passage as I was looking at this passage, if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in John chapter 20. By the way, Bible and breakfast... Bible and breakfast, I'm excited about that on a Thursday morning. We're going to start that. It's going to start on the 4th of October. Get that in your diaries. 8 8 a.m. here. You can come at 7 a.m. to pray. And then if you want to sit around and and read the Bible and engage with the Bible, 8 a.m. till 9, we're going to have breakfast and Bible together. It's going to be great. So if you've got your Bibles open now, we're going to be in John chapter 20. And the thing that struck me is that verse 26. Verse 26. It was a week later that Jesus came to the disciples. That's what struck me. Those seven days... That's a long time. If you with your friends and your friends have just said they've seen the risen Christ and you've got to wait six sleeps or seven sleeps, whatever it is, before you see it yourself, that's a long time to wait. And for some of us, there's that deep personal resonance with that. I don't know how long your week is, but for some of us, these doubts, this questioning, I can't be fully in until I've seen for myself. That for us goes a long way. Some of those doubts have been with you a while. And so I have sympathy for Thomas. I want to have, I have sympathy for Thomas, the one they call the doubting one. I have sympathy for him at the start because I think his desire is just to see what everyone else has seen, right? And we all have doubts. We all want that. So I have sympathy there, but I also have sympathy for him because of the end of the story. See, something happens to him. He encounters Jesus in a particular way. And I'm going to show you this morning that I think that encounter is different from what we expect it might be. But at the end of that encounter, he cries out. You can see in the passage, he cries out, my Lord and my God. It's an outrageous statement of faith. Like he couldn't be more in at that point. For a Jew, especially someone who um, uh, at that time, someone who was a monotheist who believed that Yahweh was the only God and you should only worship Yahweh, for him to make that confession, that statement of faith, my Lord and my God, is huge. This was one of the strongest clearest statements of faith in Jesus Christ as God in the whole of the Gospels. And the church tradition then has it that Thomas went out from here. We don't have it in our Bibles, but this is sort of what the church has taught, that he leaves here and he goes all the way to India and spreads the Gospel in India further than any of the other apostles. He is so in. And for 2,000 years, what's his name been? Doubting Thomas. Like you think sometimes you get misunderstood, right? Imagine how Thomas must feel now. So I want to talk this morning about the misunderstanding. I want to talk about doubts, the doubts we all have, the doubts we all wrestle with. Is this real? And I want to show you that there is such depth in Thomas's story, such wisdom for us today. Can I pray? And then I'll carry on. Let's pray. Father God, 
Thank you so much that you are present with us, just as you were present to Thomas. And this morning, Lord, we bring our doubts, we bring our questions. Sometimes we feel um, like Jesse in that car, Lord, we ask, is this real? We just confess to you now that for some of us, this is hard, but we've held these doubts for a long time. We bring it to you, Lord God. We bring it all to you. Speak to us this morning, Lord God, of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now then, the story turns, doesn't it, this story in John 20, of the in, in the interaction between Thomas and Jesus. And we're in this series. This is the last in the series of Jesus and the one. And here we have another one. Jesus interacting with the one, with Thomas. That's where the story turns. Now the important thing to recognize is that Thomas has a set of criteria for believing. Do you see that? The other disciples have seen Jesus and Thomas says, I will not believe unless, unless I see with my eyes, unless I put my hands on the scars, unless I put my hands in the wound, in the wound I will not believe. That's the only way I'll know that this is real. I can't believe unless it's proved to me. Unless I see a miracle with my own eyes. I can't believe unless my dad gets better. Unless I get that job, only if I get that partner, unless I have a clear, unmistakable religious experience, unless I see everything that everyone else seems to be seeing all the time, then I'll really believe. And then I'll be in. And it's understandable, isn't it, that question? Because we're talking about putting your life into something here. It's understandable that you would want that assurance, that conviction to go forward. But this is the surprising thing for me in the story. I don't know if you noticed this in the passage. The surprising thing in the story is that he doesn't do it. Do you see that? See, Jesus comes to be with him, and Jesus offers himself. He stands among them. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See, touch, reach out. I'm offering you what you wanted. I'm offering you the answer to your question. I'm saying to you here, you can have it. But Thomas doesn't take it. And I think John wants us to see that. I think John wants us to see that Jesus comes to Thomas and says, here, touch. You can be, you can have your proof. Every answer you've got can be nailed down. But Thomas doesn't take it. Thomas instead cries out in this confession, my Lord and my God. This isn't a story about a man demanding evidence, seeing that evidence and then having faith. No, this is something else altogether. Thomas has this criteria, then Jesus shows up, something happens, and Thomas is as if he doesn't need the criteria anymore. It's as if he doesn't need the proof anymore. He doesn't need to put his fingers there, his hands there. And this is where I think the text is a little confusing at this point. Now, the Bibles we have, the New Testament, was originally written in Greek. And, and I get it that it's hard to take um, something from one language and translate it into another language, particularly before Google Translate. <laughs> and listen, I got a C at GCSE French, and I've never translated any Bible, so I feel a sort of on shaky ground criticizing someone here. But I think at this point, the Bibles that we have, the NIV, gets it just a little bit confusing. Because, see, we have this verse in verse 27. Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubt. And that kind of implies that what Thomas does is move from doubt to belief or doubt to faith. Whereas in actual fact, the word there is not doubt. That word doubt doesn't appear in this passage. The word that is used there is actually just the opposite of the word for belief, for faith. So the word for belief, for faith that we see here is this word pistis. Can everybody say pistis? Be very careful. <laughs> pistis. That's the word. Jesus says, stop moving from apistis, from unbelief, and move to pistis, to belief. Stop living in unbelief and move to belief. 
See, Jesus doesn't talk about doubt. Doubt isn't the thing. Doubt isn't the issue for Jesus. It's never been the issue for Jesus. For Jesus, what matters is this word belief, or as the word I'm going to use today, faith. What matters for Jesus is not doubt. What matters for Jesus is faith. And then you see, you look down and you see that's John's whole point from the start. Right, the guy who wrote this gospel, he gives this summary of why he's written this book. And I wanted us to read that bit just after the passage about Thomas. Verse 31. I've written all this, he says. I've given you this story so that what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's son. I.e., you might believe, you, us, me today, that we might believe that Jesus is who he says he is, God's son, chosen, anointed, God himself in human form. And by believing that, you might have life in his name. That's it. It's not written to solve all the problems. It's not written to square every circle, answer every question. It's not written, get this, to answer every doubt. No, it's written for one reason and one reason alone so that Jesus might leap off the page into your life to the extent that you and I can say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Doubt is not the issue. Faith is the issue. Jesus isn't worried about doubts. He's not bothered by doubting. What he cares about, what he's looking for, is faith. That we might see a people of faith, that you and I might have faith. And so doubt, questioning, checking out, being healthily suspicious, Worry about your beliefs. Asking, is this real? All of that is part of faith. Faith isn't the opposite of doubt. They're not like two ends of a spectrum. Faith is something different. It's a whole other spectrum altogether. It's something other. It's a different way of knowing. Something happens to Thomas that moves him from this position of needing proof, hard factual evidence to a whole different place where his criteria is not important anymore. And so I think faith, this is what I want to say this morning, I think faith is more like love. Think of it, a deep relationship of love you have with somebody. Being loved or, being, uh, or loving someone else. Father or mother, child, spouse, fiance, or whatever. What does it mean to know that you are in love with that person? It's a different sort of knowing isn't it? You can't measure it. You know, today I feel about 40% in love with that person. You can't quantify it. You just are. Likewise, love isn't the result of evidence or data. You didn't begin to love because of the evidence and the data in your favor. You know, why do I love this person? Well, you know, there are sort of probably in about the top 25% of most attractive people I know. And <laughs> they like, you know, they make me laugh probably about 38% of the time. And that apple crumble is like probably in the top two apple crumbles I've ever tasted. And so I, I weighed the whole thing together and all around it was a great package. And so I'm in. By the way, Vicky Folger, you come top in every category. <clears throat> I get to say that. It's her birthday on Monday. That's all you're getting. <clears throat> But faith, faith is more like love. Love is just, it's bigger than what happens, right? It's bigger than the external circumstances. Faith is like love. It's the state of trusting. It's the lens through which you look at everything else. By the way, because faith is a different sort of knowing, because it's more like love, this explains, I think, why people are able to have faith in the most extraordinary of circumstances. 
From cancer wards, hospice beds, funerals to refugee camps, faith is in these places. And are there doubts in those places? Absolutely. Who can know the sort of questions that are asked of God in places like those, in situations like those? Faith isn't blind. Faith isn't blind to reality. It doesn't hide away, but faith lives in and through the darkest of nights. And so Thomas encounters Jesus and he moves not from doubt to assurance, but from unbelief to belief, from non-faith to faith, from lack of faith to faith. Just a few thoughts on this. The first thing to say about this is this idea that faith and doubt are therefore not enemies. They're not enemies. Can we jump forward, Miles, the next slide? Faith and doubt are not enemies. And that has all sorts of implications, I think, for our faith journeys. Listen, if, if you're having doubts today, if you regularly doubt all this, if you're asking that question, is this real? That's no indication of the faith that you have or don't have in Jesus. Like, welcome to the party. I have doubts all the time. This is a daily reality for me, and often it's that suffering question. You know, I turn on the news or... You know, just in the, in the business of ministering to people, you hear these stories, you sit yourself in these situations that people are going through. And I'm ask, often asking that question, what does it mean to talk about a good God? What does it mean to ask the question, is God good? Is God for us and for, and for this congregation? But I also know that I wouldn't be having those doubts if I didn't have faith in the first place. Those doubts wouldn't even be part of my existence. I also know that if God showed himself fully un, unresolved, like, without doubt, without question, it wouldn't be without doubt because the next day there would be doubts that creep in. I know this because this happens to me all the time. I experience Jesus in a particular way beyond doubt and then the next day I wake up and guess what? The doubts come back. You can push in is my point even though you have doubts. And if you're waiting for those doubts to be answered before you can believe, you're gonna be waiting a long, long time. The invitation for all of us, convinced or unconvinced, skeptical, whether we've seen more than enough evidence or whether we're still waiting for that thing, the invitation is to move forward in faith. Have faith. And you know what? It was precisely in his doubt that Thomas met Jesus. See, his doubt becomes the moment that Jesus is able to talk to him. The doubt for him becomes actually the way into the most extraordinary event of the whole of his life because Thomas did not leave. Thomas continued to doubt, but he stayed with them for eight days. For a whole week, he stayed in the room with the disciples, holding on, still with the others, still hoping, and Jesus comes to him. What Thomas shows is that the only thing to worry about is walking away. It's not doubts. Bring your doubts. So doubt and faith, they're not enemies. And my experience has been that. My experience really has been that doubt for me has not been the exit from faith but often doubt is the entry point into a deeper faith. Not the exit, but the entry. Secondly, though, the opposite of faith um, isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. The opposite of faith is certainty. That's what Thomas was looking for, wasn't it? Certainty. Unless, unless, only then can I be in proof that no doubt, all boxes ticked. Now, there's something about certainty which is important to recognise. I was listening to a preacher the other day talk about doubt and, uh, from another passage in scripture and he said this phrase that's haunted me all week. He, he, he just dropped this in. He said, you know, um, we talk about um, certainty 
and its close friend, control. Just dropped it in. Certainty and its close friend, control. And I've never made that connection before, the fact that with certainty goes control. Those two words go together. But it kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? See, Thomas has his criteria. But who has drawn up the criteria? Who's in charge of that criteria? It's him. He needs proof. Unless I see, or put it this way, unless you, Jesus, meet my set of expectations, I cannot possibly believe. You see that control? He encounters Jesus, though, and then something changes for him. He drops that need for control to be in charge of Jesus' need to answering his questions. My Lord and my God. And in Greek, that reads, the Lord of me and the God of me. I like that. The Lord of me and the God of me. He gives up all control. You be the Lord. You be the God. Not just for that moment, but for the whole of his life. Take me. Take my life. Have the keys to my life. You sit in the driver's seat, Jesus, from now on. I don't make the decisions anymore. You do. That's what faith looks like. And so I've been, as I say, haunted by that this week. You know, what if the reason I struggle to have faith is actually a control thing? What if I struggle to feel like I'm trusting him because I'm in control? I've set the agenda. I've decided beforehand what it needs to look like for me, if God is going to be real to me. I've decided what he would need to do, and so I'm in control. My need for proof is my need to be in charge. But that's a problem, because if there's one thing that must be necessary true about God, it's that surely he's more in control than I am. He's sort of more in charge than I am, right? And so we need to be aware that sometimes faith is hard, not because we lack proof, but because there's something in us that doesn't want to give over control. Right, doesn't want to hand over the keys. Doesn't want to say, my Lord and my God. And it's why I felt like every sermon in this series we've been doing on Jesus and the One has sort of come back to this same place, which is that faith looks like humility. Faith looks like laying it all down. Risky, sacrificial, costly. That's what true faith looks like. It's like the need for proof is a treadmill that we're on and it just goes round and round and round. I just need one more miracle, then I'd believe. One more encounter, then I'd believe. One more experience, one more testimony, then I'll believe, then I'll jump. But it just keeps going round and round and round. And the invitation of Jesus is to step off the treadmill. The invitation is to step into something far more stable. You are the Lord of me. You are the God of me. Take me. I'm tired of being in control. You're better at it than me. Take the keys. That's faith. Faith and doubt are not enemies. And faith is about giving over control. Just to be clear in all of this. My point is, that, is not that faith is irrational. It's not that faith is stupid. It's not that we leave our brains at the door. Does it work, this Christianity thing, philosophically? Does it work rationally? I think it does. I think it makes sense. I think it's cogent. I think it's logical. I think it adds up. I'm just saying that logic won't get us to where Jesus, I think, invites us to go, which is ultimately to trust him. This is an all-encompassing reality where Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our beginning and end. And the other stuff doesn't quite get there. The invitation is to faith. And so as I come into land, I want to ask this question. Go to the next slide. I think that should be a what rather than a how. What did it for Thomas? 
What did it for Thomas? What was it? What enabled him to move from the need for proof to trust, overwhelming trust in Jesus? See, I've said that he came with this criteria for belief and then he doesn't need it anymore. And I've been praying about it, meditating about it this week, reading the passage again and again. And for me, and I think what God is saying is that there's something about the way that Jesus comes to Thomas that Thomas sees. There's something in the way that Jesus appears to his disciples, offers them all peace, and then he turns to Thomas and he speaks to Thomas directly. And he gives to Thomas exactly what Thomas needs, exactly what Thomas has been desiring. That's what does it for Thomas, the fact of Jesus doing that. The way Jesus moves towards him, offering himself to him, that's enough. Thomas is like, take me now. I've seen enough. What he sees, I think, is Jesus' love. He sees Jesus' kindness. He sees his mercy. And in that moment, everything changes for him. He sees Jesus, and maybe in that moment, he sees the whole thing, right? He sees the whole picture. Jesus opens up his hands, shows him the wounds in his side. How vulnerable of Jesus. Last week, Johnny talked about the thief on the cross looking at Jesus with arms outstretched. God couldn't be more vulnerable. And Jesus comes again to Thomas and says, here I am. Touch me. Here I am. Vulnerable, open. And maybe Thomas sees everything. He sees the story in that moment of God giving himself up for the world. Maybe what Thomas sees is that the whole thing has been about love since the beginning. That maybe this man, this Jesus, God himself, is endless, self-giving, constant love. He sees in that moment that mercy triumphs over judgment. He sees that in him is goodness and nothing else, that light defeats darkness, that evil does not have the final word. He sees that he does not need to fear anything, that in the end, all will be well, and he gets to live a life of freedom now. He sees that in that moment, and it all changes. Perhaps we can put it like this. For Thomas, in that moment, what is most true about Jesus is not the scars, not the wounds, but his nature. What's most true about Jesus isn't his physicality, that there's some sort of scientifically verifiable way that he's seen. What's most true about Jesus is what's always been most true about him and always will be most true about him, that he is eternal, constant, endless divine love. And it's that that transforms Thomas. It's that that enables him to have faith. And do you know why it does it? It does it, friends, because the deepest need that you and I have is not for our intellect to be satisfied, but our souls to be loved. Do you see that? Do you know that what drives you and I through life is not so much what we think, but what we desire in our hearts? Where our hearts are, everything else follows. And so it's there that Jesus goes with Thomas. He captivates his heart. And we've seen it, haven't we, week after week after week in this series. Right? What leads Zacchaeus to give up his money? It's not that he's just understood something new, some new piece of data. It's that he's found something so much more attractive, captivating, mesmerizing, the material wealth. Right? Why does the blind man cry out all the more when someone, everyone else shuts up? It's because he desires Jesus more than public approval. Why does the thief on the cross cry out to Jesus when he's in complete agony? The final moments of his life, the most horrific experience of his life, when everyone else is cursing Jesus, when everyone else is spitting at Jesus, why does the thief on the cross turn to Jesus and ask him for mercy? 
It's not data that does it. It's because there's something about this man that captivates him, that has drawn his heart. Friends, faith is a journey of the heart. To grow in faith, we need simply to fall in love deeper with Jesus. Can you explain the mysteries of falling in love to me? Can you explain it? Is it completely irrational, nonsensical, stupid? Of course not. But it's more than data, isn't it? It's more than proof. It's more than evidence falling in love. It's about spending time with your beloved, getting to know them more deeply. Thomas sees Jesus and he falls in love again. My Lord and my God. And that is for us the invitation to fall in love with Jesus. Doubts, no doubt, certainty, uncertainty. Get off the treadmill. Fall in love with Jesus. And we each of us, I think, need to find where does that happen for us? Where is it that we're drawn again to Jesus? Where are those moments that we fall in love with him again? For some of us, this is it. For some of us, it's contexts like this, these worship contexts. And for us, where we, are, we feel our hearts most captivated by Jesus are these sort of moments. Ecstatic religious experiences, maybe. Maybe with others, maybe alone. Our hearts are lifted to him. But for some of us, our hearts are lifted when we love others or when we see someone else loving others, when we're part of an organization or a body which is loving people sacrificially. That's the moment where Jesus captivates our heart. Or maybe for some of us, when Jesus most captivates our heart is when we're in nature, when we're alone in the wilderness. Is it alone? Is it with others? For some of us, it will be, it will be intellectual pursuit and theology and books. That's the key to our heart. For others, it won't be our minds, but it will be our bodies, what we do with our hands. Maybe for some of us, it's a balance of all of that. Find what it takes to unlock your heart. Or better, find the keys that Jesus uses to get to your heart. And then just let him do that again and again and again. And perhaps what matters most is simply the intentionality to do that, the being with God, giving over to control by letting him have time with you in your heart. That's what leads to love, isn't it? That's what leads to love. Time in the beloved's company, courting, dating, whatever you want to call it, to allow him to captivate your heart. I believe more and more that faith is just an invitation to receive God's goodness. In all of these stories in this series, we've seen the radical way that Jesus loves, the move that he makes constantly, consistently towards us, seeking out those who are lost, constant, never-ending. But we've also seen faith, the willingness to receive that love, to hold our buckets out and catch something of it. And it's so often in spite of clear answers and having everything intellectually sorted. It's through and through filled with doubt, but it works it works philosophically, but it doesn't even need to make sense in every moment. I can't explain it. I can't prove it. It's love. It's a different sort of knowing. It's a different way. It's a receiving of divine love. And it's open to each of us.